0: All right, chapter two is about economics and how it affects business. And you'll see there's a symbiotic relationship between the world around us, your business, and your individual self and household, okay? You'll hear me say it. You heard me say it last week. I'll keep saying it. There is a parallel between your business or the business you work for, the organization you work for, and your personal life. Um, And if your business is suffering, probably your personal life's going to suffer and vice versa. If you if you're out um, and don't have your personal life together, it's going to affect your work, right? And so there's this symbiosis and parallel that exists between your business and your personal life. So explain these are learning outcomes for the chapter. We'll try this this version first. Sorry. So explain basic economics. Explain what capitalism is and how free markets work. Compare socialism and communism. Uh, analyze the trend towards mixed economies. Describe the economic system of the United States, including the significance of key economic indicators, especially GDP, productivity, and the business cycle. And then contrast fiscal policy and monetary policy, and explain how each affects the economy. So we're going to talk about a lot of different things in this chapter. Um, and so GDP, gross domestic pro- product, um, the growth of U.S. GDP can be influenced by productivity of the nation's workforce. Um, it can also be impacted by the misfortunes of major U.S. companies. Uh, when this company was forced to stop production of its 737 MAX airliner, the company as well as suppliers and airlines that fly the 737 saw their growth severely impacted. What company do you think that is? Boeing. Boeing is correct, yeah. And so remember how I told you these parallels exist? When Boeing struggles, their workers struggle, those workers' household struggles, struggles and then the, the local economy also struggles. So there's a, definitely a symbiosis and a connection that you see there. And so the economic effect, business success in the United States is due partly to our free economic and social climate, meaning that we allow businesses to start to thrive and to fail and to start again. Um, this is the greatest place on earth to open a business because if it doesn't go well, you can learn a lesson, sometimes not, jump back in and go again. Um, and and we, the government knows that there's going to be failures along the way, but on the whole, enough businesses are going to succeed to keep the economic engine turning. Changes in U.S. economic or political systems influence business success. Global economics and global politics also influence business in the U.S. Absolutely. Um, there's this thing called geopolitics, and that's why we spend the government spends a lot of time talking to other countries and trying to make sure that we keep uh, things on a peaceful and open market system because disruptions in one part of the world ripple across the rest of the world. And so it's in our interest to keep things flowing freely and smoothly. So economic contrast, to give you some idea of what we're talking about, the economic contrast shown here is remarkable. Businesses booming in Seoul, South Korea, as shown in the photo on the right, but North Korea, a communist country, is not doing well, as the picture on the left shows. What do you think accounts for the dramatic differences in economies of these two neighboring countries? So what's the big difference maker here? These countries are right, I mean, they're right beside each other. They could both be having boom cycles, but what do you think the big difference maker is? One has a dictator. One has a dictator. And they control, that dictator controls the factors of production, doesn't allow for the capitalistic system to to thrive. And, you know, I'll tell you, I'm a capitalist, and I've told you already this, I'll keep repeating it, but capitalism has problems, but it's the most, uh, the best system that aligns with human incentives than any other system. What I mean is that if you get up in the morning and you go do some work, you're probably going to get rewarded for that work but not every system has that. I mean, there are other systems that you can work more and more and get less and less or no reward at all. And so that's why the capitalistic system is, is a better system. And so let's talk about some terms here. Economics is the study of how society chooses to employ resources and produce goods and services and distribute them for consumption among various competing groups and individuals. Um, and that key word there is competition. Competition's a good thing. Um, I was looking at a product or service earlier, um, and there wasn't a lot of competition, and I was just thinking, that's not good. Why do you think competition's a good thing? It other companies to do better. It, it makes companies do better. It, it forces them to innovate. Yeah, for the longest time, Google has kind of dominated search engines, and now this artificial intelligence program, ChatGBT, is coming along, with open AI and they're probably going to put turn Google on its head. And so competition forces these companies to innovate. It forces them to keep uh, doing, reaching for that next uh, opportunity. Um, my Macroeconomics is the part of the economy that studies, that looks at the operation of a nation's economy as a whole, while macro looks at parts of the economy where behavior of people and organizations is in particular interest. So smaller scale is micro, larger scale is macro. Has anybody taken micro or macroeconomics yet? No? Is it a part of your program, do you know? Okay. Got gotcha. you. And so resource development is the study of how to increase resources and to create conditions that will make better use of those resources. Remember when we talked about the factors of production last week and land is one of those? When I say land, I'm using that to incorporate a lot of resources that come from the land. So examples of ways to increase resources, new energy sources, new ways of growing food, uh, new ways of creating goods and services like nanotechnology, 3D printing, and 4D technologies. So talking about growing food for a minute, our surface area of earth doesn't change very much. You know, We got this chunk of land, that's what we've got. So we have to innovate better ways to maximize our yield. What's some of the ways that we've innovated to increase our yield for crops? Fertilizer, Fertilizer what else? That's an innovation.
1: I'd
0: say GMO. GMOs, genetically modified organisms. That's an innovation. The way we plant to begin with, if you look at crops fifty years ago versus now, if you go look, just it's fascinating to watch how they plant corn. They stack them right on top of each other, and those corn stalks just grow vertical beside each other, and they do that because they're maximizing that square footage in that field, you know. So those are just three good examples. Um, and another way they do that is soil analysis. They'll take a soil sample, they'll send it off to be analyzed, and that farmer knows exactly how much of a certain chemical or chemicals to add to that uh, field to help get the conditions right, balance the soil levels out in order to maximize their yield. So we've got a lot of ways to increase our resources, uh, and those are all important. I mean, if you increase your yield 10 or 20%, that's a major boon to your bottom line, so... So some additional information. Contrary to mathis, some macro macroeconom I'm sorry macroeconomists believe a large population can be a resource, an educated population is highly valuable. Business owners provide jobs and economic growth for their employees and communities as well as for themselves. And so, absolutely. I mean, what you can take either side of this, but what do you think? Do you think a large dense population provides a value proposition, or do you think it's a resource? Like some consu- consu- consumption set up. What do you think? It's not a right or wrong answer. It's an opinion.
1: I mean, you have places like China that's like a huge population. Usually, they like, work in factories and well. Um, I don't know how educated they are. Like, I don't
0: know. If- right. That's one thing that frustrates me in this country is that I think we're like 19th or so in the in the world on education, and you would think we would recognize from a global competitive standpoint, we need to be in the top two or three, you know, I mean, because that is a resource. I mean, if you've got uh, other countries that are outperforming you in education, that's going to have a trickle-down effect over generations. So uh, um, I wish we had more investment, but of course I'm biased. I work in education, so... All right, so Adam Smith and the creation of wealth. Adam Smith, great, uh, great guy, uh, had a lot of great things to say. His biggest thing was the invisible hand. We'll talk about that. But he said freedom is, was vital to any economy's survival. Freedom to own land or property and the right to keep the profits of a business is essential. People will work hard if they believe they will be rewarded. So if you take away freedom, you take away rewards, what incentive do people have to work? There's, there's very little incentive. So Adam Smith talked about the importance of freedom and ownership. He also had this idea about the invisible hand. The invisible hand is the process that turns self-directed gains into social and economic benefits for all. And so I'll talk about this generally, and then we'll get into the book discussion. But um, I love using the hamburger example, and we always talk about food in this class. I always get hungry in here. But So if you're going to go get a hamburger after class, where are you going to go get it? Like McDonald's, where where, where else might, might you go? Cookout. cookout. Uh uh-huh. yeah. Cookout's pretty good. I like it. That char grill flavor. Yeah. Um. Anybody else have a different burger they prefer?
1: I don't really like pick the Checkers. I know they sell
0: burgers. I've never been. Is it good? It's alright. Right. Yeah. But would you go to Cookout or Checkers?
1: Opa
0: cookout. Cookout. So if you go to Cookout, do you go to the hamburger or cheeseburger? I like chicken sandwich? Yeah, right? so bacon. So, bacon, chicken. So, let's, I don't know. What do you get on it? So, you got bacon, you got lettuce? Bacon, cheese, lettuce, yeah. Do you get mayonnaise on it? Um, I think there's mayonnaise on it, yeah. So, you got bacon, cheese, lettuce, mayonnaise, and a bun, right? And chicken. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, six products roughly, plus the spices and herbs that go into the chicken. So, so there's a half dozen, dozen products that go into that. And then you got the labor, you got the building, and Basically, all those components of the chicken sandwich, somebody in that supply chain had to say, I want to make money for myself, so I'm going to either grow pigs or grow chickens, pigs for the bacon, chicken for the chicken sandwich, or I'm going to grow wheat to make the sandwich buns or lettuce to make the lettuce. You know, all these different manufacturers or, or growers said, I'm going to seek out my own selfish interest. I'm going to turn a profit. But by them doing that, by them being selfish, you're able to get your chicken sandwich. And what Invisible Hand says is that by everybody seeking out their own selfish gains, it benefits society as a whole. So, like, every time you go out and consume whatever it may be, seeking out something that, I don't like the word selfish, but that's that's kind of the language they use. By you being self-centered on wanting to make sure that you're taking care of your own wants and needs, that helps the economic cycle turn. So... Um, and we all do this. What's something like, I see this uh, Beats headset. You know, you wanted those Beats, right? They're not essential for to live, but you wanted to have a set. And by you going out and buying that set, you enabled that company and those individuals that made it, the person that transported it, the person that sold it, all these moving pieces to benefit in some way from that want satisfaction that you did. And so that's what Invisible Hand is, you know. And so, uh, and... Now, you said, you, what type of work do you do? you work at Walmart, yeah, And so when consumers go in there and they're buying products and services, they're enabling you to have that job because by them doing that, seeking out the things they won't need, that justifies the reason that you are there. So, and so as what, what Adam Smith said is, as people improve their own life situation, they help the economy prosper through products, uh, the production of goods and services and ideas and charitable don- donations. However, poverty rates in the U.S. remains high. Why do you think that is? If we're all seeking out these things and we're all helping to drive the economic engine, why have we not been able to crack the poverty rate in the United States? It's grown in my lifetime and homelessness has grown in my lifetime. Food insecurity has grown in my lifetime. It's frustrating because you would think, quote unquote, the richest country on earth could not have to deal with these types of things. Yeah, selfish people are too selfish. Selfish people are too selfish. Okay. I, li- I like that. Other ideas? Like uh, products
1: are going up in price but the wage isn't doing
0: anything. Yeah, that's a, that's a big thing is that um, products and services are going up but not commiserate with wages, you know, and that actually leads me to a slight digression um, and we will talk about more in this class but before 1971, money was tied to gold. I mean, if you had a $10 bill, it was redeemable for $10 worth of gold in a bank. But after 1971, we went off what's called the gold standards, and we have now what's called fiat currency, F-I-A-T. For fiat means by decree, that's why it's valuable. And so the problem with fiat, the, the, the pro with fiat is that we can print money to do things we want to do with our economy. The bad news is as we print more money, we create inflation. And before we, before we have our crazy inflation that we've got now, inflation was clipping up about one5 to 3% a year. But at this point, we're in the 8 to 12% range, depending on what products you're looking at. I read somewhere that eggs went up 60% the past year. It's crazy. I mean, I'm not a big, I don't eat eggs myself, but I buy them for my kids and they're very expensive. So you're onto to something when you say wages didn't go up commiserate to products and services. And part of the blame is circulation of cash. Once you create more money, the, the, the money is a symbol for energy. I have to expend energy. I have to work. I have to do something with my mind or my body to trade my energy for a service. Or, and that service, I get compensated for it. That compensation, those bills, represent a medium of exchange that I can trade those at Walmart to get goods and services. But the problem is is that if I have funny money or money that's just created out of thin air, there was no energy expended to earn that. And so it's easy to print trillions of dollars and create the current inflationary situation that we're in right now. So questions on that or comments? So invisible hand is what? When I say invisible hand, I just think selfish. People selfishly pursuing their own interests helps move the economy forward. So capitalism in a nutshell an economic system in which all or most of the factors of production and distribution are privately owned and operated for profit. Examples are the United States, England, Australia, and Canada. The state of capitalism, a a combination of freer markets and some government control, or state capitalism. China has experienced rapid growth using state capitalism, meaning that they control some of the factors of production, but otherwise they give some free range to the private sector. Questions on that? So the four basic rights, according to capitalism, the right to own property or private property, the right to own a business and keep all that business's profits, the right to to freedom of competition, and the right of freedom of choice. Yeah, if you don't like a business, you don't like a business product or service, you don't have to buy the product from them. Um, When it comes to uh, keeping all the profits, yet... We, we'll talk about this some more, but do you think a company owes more to an employee beyond compensation? Like, if an employee knocks on your door and says, Will you hire me for $10 an hour? and you say yes, should there be any more by like, consideration beyond that? No health insurance? All right. What do you guys think? I mean, After time, yeah. what's that? After time. After time. Yeah, I guess it depends on the work situation, um, but I don't know, I seen both sides of it. I, I think in this, in this country we have this societally, we have this entitlement mentality that we go to a job and that job's supposed to do all these things for us, when at the end of the day if you look at it strictly through a capitalistic lens, the business exists to serve its shareholders, the people that own the business. Now that's not a very nice interpretation, but it's a business interpretation. Um, I know, like, you're seeing a lot of layoffs in the tech sector right now. I think I've read that some of these big tech companies have laid off something like twenty or 30,000 people in the past uh, few weeks. Um, I think Spotify was the most recent. It's laying off like 6% of its workforce. Um, you know, you could look at it one way. Well, you hire these people. Don't you have an obligation to, to look out for them? But at the end of the day, the answer is no. You have an obligation to look out for your owners, that's the reason you exist. And if, they, if you keep people on your payroll just to look out for them and the business ends up going bankrupt because of that, you're not serving anybody. And so um, business involves tough decision-making sometimes. And so Roosevelt's f- uh, four additional freedoms, freedom of speech and expression, freedom of worship in your own way, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. Um, what do you guys think about this? What do you think he meant by freedom from want? Any ideas? I think he was trying to say in our system, if you show up on time and do good work, you should have your basic needs met. You know, that's what he was. I think he was trying to say. Um, but once again, this gets into this idea of uh, what else does an organization owe you, you know? Um, and does freedom of speech mean that you can say anything you want to say? No? What do you mean, what do you think, James? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, if we're talking at work, then you, debate, you know, whatever your work condition is, you're in danger of
0: connection because of the kid. Right, yeah, yeah. Well, freedom of speech means that you can say what you want to say, but you have to own the consequences of that speech. Yeah, if if you say things that are inappropriate, then uh, even though you had the freedom to say that, that doesn't mean that you are free to not suffer the consequences. You know, like you can't stand in a movie theater and you'll fire. That's that's you know, there is a reason for that because it creates a safety consideration. You know, it creates a safety issue. Um, you can't do the same thing on an airplane. You know, there is safety comes into play on the in these scenarios. And so, um, yes, you do have freedom of speech, but you also have the consequences of that speech. Um, other questions or comments from this before we move on? All right. So, how free markets work. The decision about what and how much product or produce, or how much to produce are made by the markets. Consumers send signals about what they like and how they like it. Um, everybody, like we just came through the holiday season, Based on what happened this holiday season, the producers are going to make decisions now about what Christmas 23 is going to look like. Um, They'll analyze how many strings of light were sold, how many candy canes were sold, how many trees were sold, and on and on and on. And they'll be able to analyze it down to each individual item. They'll know how many of those items went on clearance. And they can tailor it based on a specific market. They'll say... You know, this specific store had X number of lights that were having to be clearance, so we need to send less lights to this store and maybe send more to this store over here that ran out. Uh, it doesn't always work that way, but the more data you have, the more you can tailor it to give consumers, to respond to those consumer signals, what they like and how they like it. Anybody like the McRib? Does anybody eat it? If, there was, if I offered you a McRib right now, would you jump on it? You're saying you're, you're. Uh, eaten it. It's not your first choice? Yeah,
1: it's not. Like, the reason why they keep it as a special yeah. type thing is because they know people aren't going to buy all the time. So it's,
0: if you put that as that limited time, people are like, oh, it's only going to be a It's time. a scarcity thing, yeah. yeah. So, anybody like Nikes? You, any Nike fans? You you prefer Nike over another brand of shoes? No, I like Adidas. You like Adidas? What do I you like? Like, the like uh, N- N- Nike? So, I'm not a huge sneakerhead, but I like sneakers. Um, I don't have a ton of pairs, but um, I appreciate the sneaker culture and collecting. And Nike knows that their consumers like the scarcity of of specific colorways of shoes. And so, they make and sell 400,000 pairs of a specific type of shoe, but they'll only make 40,000 because they know that people will be lined up at, at Foot Locker and other places, and you have this... Scarcity mentality that if I don't get it now, I'm going to miss out, and Nike loves that culture of, and if, if a consumer misses out on a product, and they really wanted that product, they are highly likely to buy a substitute product. So if you're in line at Foot Locker and you don't get that new release that you were there and you were, chomping at the bit to get and it was three hundred dollars, but you get to the end of the line and they they're out, well you're looking at that hundred fifty dollar pair over there and you think you know what. I'm gonna buy this hundred fifty dollar pair and take the other hundred fifty and go do something else. And Nike wins either way, you know. So they love this artifact artificial scarcity, um, and they know how they have listened to cu- customers and responded to that signal. They're creating the culture of scarcity because that's what their customers like. They love the hunts. They love the culture around. This person has that pair. I really like it. I can't get it because I didn't jump on it. So next time something exclusive comes out that I like, I need to be there to snatch it up. And that's how how that company operates. So prices tell companies how much of a product they should produce. If a price is strong, meaning they're having to increase prices because they're constantly selling out, that's a strong indicator that they've underpriced the product and that they need to make more at a higher price. If something is wanted but hard to get, the price will rise until more products are available. Anybody play PlayStation 5? Did you do? you have one? Yeah, I have one. I got it
1: for
0: my birthday last year, but it was it was pretty it was a pain ass to get one. So it was like two years old at that point, right? Yeah. yeah. they were already like thinking about coming out with a new one. So, so it took you two years to get one, right? Yeah. So when I'm not, <clears throat> I'm not a big gamer anymore. I just don't have time to mess with it. Um, I did put a deposit on the new Zelda game coming out in a couple months. I love Zelda, but um, that being said, I I don't know when PlayStation came out, there was a couple games I wanted to play, but. It was very frustrating trying to get one, so I ended up buying a PlayStation Four, just to be able because it was a huge catalog of good games out. So, and I still have it, and it still works. But um, yeah, I mean, that that that's just one example of something that's hard to get, and they keep raising the prices. So the core of console price stays the same, but it's rare to be able to buy just the console. Yeah. A lot of times they have them bundled. Like I'll get emails from GameFly or not GameFly, but I'm um, GameStop. And it's like you can't even buy it by itself. You have to buy it with two games, like extra people. controller, right? And so, yeah, that's how they do it. So. So
1: I know Amazon, they been pretty consistent like, having – it's like a game book, like uh, Horizon, a got-book. Yeah, right. And usually if you sign up, you're able to get one. Um, but, yeah, it just took me get one.
0: Yeah, was it worth it? I think
1: so. Which what's, Amazon- what's you- – I had the PlayStation Pro or 4 Pro. Um, I got that when it first came out, and mine was already starting to kind of get torn up, and just, uh, just was up working as it used to. So, um, and then when the PS5 was announced, everything I was gone. Like, oh. And some games <coughs> too, I um, know GTA 5, like one of my friends got one, uh, got the PS5 day one, and he downloaded GTA 5, uh-huh. his PS5, but for some reason, when he wasn't able to play
0: with us even though we had PS4. So it was kind of like crap. Um, what game is your favorite on the system? I play Destiny
1: 2 a lot. Okay. But um, I also play
0: like Modern Warfare and stuff like that. Yeah, I haven't played that stuff in a while. I was I, The last Modern Warfare I was into was Modern Warfare 4, I think that's what it was, yeah. So, All right. So the circular flow model, this talks about how we flow from businesses to household and you see... At the top, we've got uh, input payments and then uh, impact factors of productivity and then goods and services and then buying power. And so you see this circular motion of going back and forth between what households can afford to do and how businesses deliver products and services to those households. And so, and and just like I've mentioned time and time again, the parallels between business and households, very big. And so like if uh, people are out of work and unemployment is high, It affects all businesses. I mean, people have less disposable income. You're going to see people going out to eat less. That, in turn, affects the employees of those restaurants. It it becomes a domino effect. So how prices are determined by buyers and sellers negotiating in the marketplace. A seller may want to sell shirts for $50, but only a few people may buy that price. If the seller lowers the price, quantity demanded is likely to increase. And I've got a chart coming up talking about supply and demand. So the economic concepts of supply, demand, and equilibrium points. Supply is the quantity of a product that manufacturers or owners are willing to sell at different prices at a specific time. So um, if I've got a 50 shirts and I'm going to sell them at $10 a piece, that is my supply. Uh, and demand is the demand of a product that people are willing to buy at different prices at a specific time. Anybody go to concerts? Not really. No. I thought
1: pan I, at the disco. So what? I went to
0: panic at the disco concert. Panic at the disco, yeah. I don't I used to go to concerts but they're just so expensive nowadays to go. I mean like a basic concert ticket's gonna cost you fifty two hundred bucks, depending on what it is or more. Um but the reason I bring that up is if I go to Walmart I can buy a t shirt with a graphic on it for ten bucks, maybe fifteen. But if you get that exact same T shirt at a concert it's gonna cost you forty five dollars. Like that, I mean the park. Yeah, what's that? Yeah, so if I buy a hoodie, like a Disney hoodie in the store, it's gonna be twenty bucks. But if I buy it at Disney World, it's gonna be sixty bucks. And the reason they do that is because they know that they've got a captive audience—people there that want this merchandise now—and you have to fight that urge of, do I want to buy it right now and pay more for it, or can I delay that gratification and pay a cheaper price? You know. I know you guys, most all of you do this, where you go to a store, you see something on the shelf, and then you look up the price online. Do you guys do that? I'm the only one, I'm the only crazy person who does this? If it's, it's like big. Like, yeah. Flat, like i laptops. Like, yeah. Sure. if it was it's something cheap, you know, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, okay. right. So, yeah, like if it's a $20 item, like and you can get it for 18 or 17 on Amazon. It's not that big of a difference and you'd rather rather have it right now. So, yeah, that's the difference is that you're paying more for the immediacy of it right now. And because they have a physical retail structure, so um and suppliers and producers know this. They know that people are going to pay different prices based on proximity and based on that environment they're in. So, the market price or the equilibrium point, the price determined by supply and demand and so the crazy thing about that concert T-shirt that's $45 is people are buying them like crazy because they want it as a souvenir. They went to this concert. It's an emotional thing. They're buying it as an impulse buy, and it's a memory form, so it's a souvenir. And so they pay those exorbitant rates because they know that this is, this is uh, something special for them. Um, but if they were still offering that $45 price point and nobody's buying them, Toward the end of concert, they'll start dropping the prices. Hey, we need to move this merchandise. So how about 30 bucks or 25 bucks? you know? Let's, let's, let's. And as they drop that supply, it appeals to uh, consumers more and more. Who in here shops the clearance aisle in stores when you walk in there? You like to see the clearance stuff. Anybody? You do? Why does that appeal to you? Yeah. Right, absolutely. I shop clearance all the time. And the thing about clearance is, they're marking it down because they know that might prompt a consumer to respond. And so if I'm, I've am i got a $20 item that's marked down to 10, that's half price. That's a strong motivating factor to say I'm getting a deal. Um, and you see more value in it than you're putting down with that $10. And so it, it prompts you to, it throws the supply demand thing on his head and it, it prompts a consumer to respond. So we'll talk about this a little bit more and then we'll wrap it up. But, so the supply curve rises from left to right. Think it through, the higher the price of the t-shirt goes, the vertical axis, the more sellers will be willing to supply. And so, yeah, if, like, if I've got prices that are on up there to 50 bucks, I'd love to sell 50 of them at 50 bucks, you know, we'll, we'll put them out there for that. <clears throat> but the demand curve is inverse. So this is a simple demand curve showing the quantity of t-shirts demand at different prices. So the demand curve falls from left to right. It's easy to understand why. The lower the price of T-shirts, the higher the, de- the quantity demanded. So that $50 T-shirt on the top left, I'm going to have very few if any people want that. But as the price drops, you're going to see more and more buyers enter the market. We'll um, use the example of a house. If I've got a house like right down the road for a million dollars, I'm going to have very few people that can step up to a million dollar house, right? But if I drop it to 500,000, you've got a few more people that can step up to that. But there's still a lot of people like, I don't know, that's a lot of money. But then if you say, you know what, I need to get out of this property, how about 150,000? All of a sudden you've got a lot of people stepping up to the line and say, okay, I'm, I'm in on this. And so that's, what, that's how that demand curves. As you drop that price, you can going see more and more people interested in that product or service. Have you ever bought something just because it was cheap? You didn't need it, you didn't want it, but the price was too good to walk away from it. Tell me, do you have an idea what that was? It was a shirt. Okay. Of like 10 bucks. Yeah. 3D printer. 3 mm-hmm. how, how, how much of a discount did you get? Like 50 60 bucks. And you didn't want it? Did you want it? I've been eyeballing. Sure. Right. I, I love deals. Um, like when, after Christmas, I, I, when it hits 50% off stuff, I'll jump on some of that. But when it hits 75%, 90%, yeah, I, I like to get, get in on stuff like that. All right, so here's where we have the equilibrium point. This is this perfect spot called the equilibrium point where the demand curve and supply curve meet. And you see this, I'm going to sell... 25 T-shirts at fifty fifteen dollars, and that is the optimum price to sell for, because um, I'm capturing the most value. If I raise my price shirt, my price for the shirts, <clears throat> I'm going to sell less shirts, and I'm going to capture less less value. And if I lower my price of the shirts, I'm going to sell more. And I'm get rid of my inventory faster, so I'm also going to miss out on value value capture. And so, trying to find that equilibrium point is where That's that optimal number that you can sell them for. And not turn people away, but also capture value. Let's apply it to something else. We talked about hamburgers earlier. What's the most you would pay for a good hamburger without being turned off by price? Yeah. I think anything over five bucks. Six bucks was the number in my mind. Anybody paying ten dollars for a hamburger? I don't care. I mean what Hey, what are you about? Like <clears throat> well I mean you tell me like Oh yeah if so if it's a Wagyu, how much would you pay for a Wagyu top shelf steak burger? Oh yeah, like twenty five dollars. Twenty five dollars? Yeah, bougie Okay. Like so, somewhere like fancy, like yeah, yeah, yeah. You
1: know what I mean? hey, we're not talking every Friday. You
0: know right. I mean? Sure. This is like every, A month or every other month or something. Yeah, yeah. Every, every couple couple times a year. I got you. So let's let's yeah. go with your example. Twenty five dollars if that burger was 50, would you buy it? No. Nah. 25 is your spot. Yeah, because I don't get the steak. Okay. you. Gotcha. So, t- exactly, because you start to look at other things. And so, like, I do that. When I go out to eat with my family sometimes and I get a bill that's like 70 bucks, in my mind automatically goes, I could have went to Texas Steakhouse and got a steak and rib combo and got my kids some chicken tenders and stuff and got the same or less money. So if I go somewhere like Olive Garden or something, it's it's expensive. I start to compare it to other things I could have got for that money. And so just like you just said, I could have got a stake for that, you know. And, and that's a comparative analysis that you're doing as a consumer. And so the reason why that 25 is a hot uh, threshold for you is because you start to realize, well, $30, 40 $45, 50 You start to think of other things you could have got. I mean, you can get a really nice meal for 50 bucks, you know. <clears throat> and so... For that 25 bucks though, there's going to be a group of people like you that are going to jump on that. But for me, I may do it once a year maybe, you know. In fact, uh, we're planning to go to the beach in a couple of months, and my wife loves to go to this place that has crab legs, all you can eat crab legs. But to go in there, um, it'll probably cost us $150 for my whole family. But it's all you can eat crab legs, and it's only once a year. But my demand for that is only once a year. Because of the high premium, you know, if you get, I mean, that's it. I just, I'm not gonna do it more than once a year. So, and sometimes it's more than one, like once every couple years. So that's how that demand curve works. But if that crab place said, you know what, we're gonna hook y'all up. We're gonna start. We're gonna do half price for the next six months. We would probably be prompted to go back once or twice more because we knew we were getting the deal, and we would be getting good value for that. So. Yeah, questions or comments on the supply-demand curve? All right, let's see what else we got. So, um, competition within free markets. There is a, such a thing as a perfect competition. Many sellers, but none is large enough to dictate the price of a product. That's what you call perfect competition where you've got a lot of different players involved and none of them are dominant, that, that's what you got. what, what you call perfect competition. Monopolistic competition is where you have a large number of sellers with very similar products that buyers nevertheless perceive as different. <coughs> Product differentiation is key. And so in monopolistic competition, um, you have some similar products. Like like everybody in this room probably uses either Android or Apple. That's monopolistic competition. Even though they're different animals, they're very similar. You, I mean... We can argue or, or agree or disagree on that, but for all intents and purposes, they're smartphones, right? And outside of Apple and Android, what else is there? Tell me, because I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, most of them are. They've got some other stuff. Google, that's, no, was well, the, the Google Pixel okay? Android. Is that Android based? I don't know. Oh, yeah. yeah. So yeah, you Windows. I don't know if they have a phone, but. Yeah. When it comes to search, when it comes to operating systems, you've got Windows, you've got Mac, and you've got Linux. And that's about it. I mean, there might be a few other. Linux has a lot of different versions within it. Um, has anybody ever tried that, by the way? Have you ever tried Linux? I down, I started getting into Linux last year just to mess with it. And I run Linux. I bought two laptops, and I run Linux, two different distributions on it. And I would encourage you guys to try it. It's really cool. And it to me, it works just as good as Windows, but it's free. So I would encourage you to try Linux out. Um, but anyway, pe- people like uh, Apple and, and Microsoft, those are ideas of monopolistic competition uh, because they have market dominance, you know. Um, you could say Walmart kind of falls in that category, but the, the caveat is there's still a lot of small grocers that operate like IGA, Foodline, um, uh, Piggly Wiggly, things like that. So uh, questions on any of this? All right, I think we're getting close to the end of our lecture for today. I'll get a little bit more. So, an oligopoly, few sellers dominate a market. So initial investment, usually very large, like aircraft, so like Boeing was an example. Uh, Products from different companies priced about the same. But a monopoly is one seller controls the total supply of a product or service and sets the price. It's prohibited in the United States with a big asterisk mark there. The government does allow for some monopolies to operate. What do you think is an example? <clears throat> like, this isn't a pure monopoly, but if you want to get health insurance in North Carolina, you're more than likely going to go to Blue Cross Blue Shield. And you're not going to find a ton of competition. And they actually have regulations against competing against across state lines They keep the competition within the state. Um, If you want to buy power, where do you buy your power from? Huh? Right. There's not a ton of competition for power, right? I mean, there is regulation that protects consumers there, but um, there's still very, very limited options for consumers, right? So um, the problem that you run into with monopolies is that it gives consumers less options, higher prices generally, and... Uh, f- fewer protections because if, I, if I'm a monopoly, I don't have to do certain things to make sure I'm, I'm in the best interest for the consumer because where else are they going to go? But if I'm in a more competitive environment, I want to innovate. I want to create more opportunities for consumers. All right, questions on any of this? All right, so some of the benefits and limitations of free markets. The benefits for free markets, it allows for open competition among companies. Provides opportunities for poor people to work their way out of poverty. And so I've read, there's a book by Hans Rawling called Factfulness, read a couple years ago. And we talked about poverty in here just a few moments ago, and poverty is a problem. That being said, capitalism has raised more people out of poverty in the past century than ever in the existence of humankind. Like, you know, we have real issues in this world right now. But the fact of the matter is 9 out of 10 people on the planet have their needs met on a daily basis. Um, And even some of the poorest people among us in the United States have tremendous wealth when you compare it to some people on Earth. You know, I mean, uh, people that live in poverty in this country, I mean, don't get me wrong, I know there's homeless people, but if you look at people that are housed that are living in poverty, if you walk in there, often you'll find a TV, a stove, running water, bedding, those types of things. And so... Um, Not to say there's not opportunities, but capitalism has raised many people out of poverty in the past century. So some limitations of free markets leads to inequality as business owners and managers usually make more money and have more wealth than lower level workers. People may start um, to let greed drive them. One of the complaints of the past few years is that the rich got richer and the poor got poorer. It's a true observation. Billionaires made out like bandits during the pandemic. Uh, And, you know, that's a real challenge because we're seeing, if I can illustrate it for you real quick, um, give you three illustrations that, that kind of show you where I'm going with this. So when this country first kicked off, it kind of looked like this, meaning that most people were poor. That's a terrible poor. That was poor handwriting. Most people were poor, very tiny, tiny middle class and then you had a, a, a very few wealthy at the top. And so what happened during the Industrial Revolution as people went to work in factories is this happened. You had a middle class that expanded, and still, you still have uh, folks that are working poor or poor, but you can see there was this upper mobility, and then you still have wealthy up here. But what's happening now as we're seeing this happen is that people are getting pushed, squeezed down. And part of this inflation, um, but you see you see this trend now where it takes like like you were saying a while ago, prices keep going up, but wages don't keep going up. And eventually it costs twice as much to buy a house, costs twice as much to buy a car, you know my buddy, I was talking to him, when he bought his house about 25 years ago, he paid $46,000 for his house. That same house today would be about $130,000. And so that's about a 3X almost. But have salaries gone up 3X in 25 years? You know, I think not. Um, if, if, if that was the case, I mean, somebody making $30,000 25 years ago would be making 90 today. And you just, you just don't see it uh, in that same... Uh, Scale. In fact, if you look at, I'll give you one more chart. If you look at a chart of salary or wage growth over time, say the past 50 years, what you see is that wealthy individuals have done this. Um, middle class and working poor have been very flat. And then inflation has tricked or ticked slightly above the working poor and middle class. So, So this is what's kind of happening now. Does this make sense to you guys? You're having this compression right now of the middle class. And I'm not, we're, we're still in a, in a land of opportunity. There's still a ton of opportunities now. But the game has, has gotten more difficult. It really is challenging um, <clears throat> to move up the scale. Um, and I don't want to be a pessimist. I'm not a pessimist. I still think there's a ton of opportunity here. But I'll give you one more example, then I'll let you go. I got a guy at my church named Jimmy. Shout out to Jimmy if you're listening. Jimmy is 85 years old. And I'm 43, so Jimmy's twice my age. But when Jimmy was coming up, if you had a bachelor's degree, you were v- firmly in the upper middle class. I mean, no no question. Um, in fact, in the 1950s, you probably have this, like, Donna Reed, Leave it to Beaver perception or stereotype where you had a nuclear family. The This is just the way I'm going to paint the picture. It's a stereotype. But one one family member went off to work. And traditionally, a mom would stay home, raise children, you know, take care of the household, but one income was enough to pay for the house, the car, and everything, the vacations, all all done. In my lifetime, I grew up; I was born in the late seventies, and then into the early into early mid eighties. You saw that transition from one income households to two income households. Well, now mom and dad both have to work to still pay for that house and that car and that vacation, right? So now, now we're into a modern age. And often, mom and dad are working two and a half jobs, you know, or like myself, I've got one and a half jobs. I do another, I do a part-time job. My wife doesn't, but she does some, she makes bracelets on the side, so, but uh, you see this evolution of having to do a side gig. There's this hustle economy, you know, and people talk about side hustles all the time, but it used to be you didn't have to do that to provide for all those wants and needs of your life, and so... You have seen a transition over time, and I'm not bitter at all. I'm just making observations to say that the game has changed. You got to be hustling. You got to be on your, on your game. You got to do the soft skill stuff. Show up on time, do good work, have strong integrity, okay? Questions, comments about anything we've talked about today? All right, we'll take a time out here for today, but let me just tell you this there's Brian Worley, everybody. <laughs> um, come on in, bud. Come on in. We just talked about the economy, and I, I, I scared them oh, here at yeah. the end. We were talking about, in the Industrial Revolution, how basically we had a lot of poor folks, a small middle class and a few wealthy, and then we had an expansion of the middle class during the Industrial Revolution, and now we're seeing a shrinking of the middle class. And so one thing we do different here, Brian, you'll like this, is we, we write soft skills on the board every class. Mm-hmm. Uh, so every class we get another soft skill to talk about ways to enhance their their workplace presence and so show up on time do good work i'm sure you've heard that before and the day was have unimpeachable integrity so but we talked about capitalism today and next time we'll talk about socialism and communism and talk about why capitalism is better this is brian worley by the way this is my boss he's the associate vice president for business industry logistics and transportation so if i get in trouble if you guys are mad at me you can go talk to him but hopefully i can i can solve your problem whatever that is so how's class going so far you guys having a good time so it's terrible Terrible? Okay, yeah. Um, d- don't forget what I said about McGraw, um, yeah, McGraw-Hill. Yeah. McGraw Make sure okay. you log in. Thursday, we'll talk about the second half of Chapter 2. And if you guys need me in the meantime, just shoot me an email, okay? All right, guys, I appreciate you. Uh, Thanks, good. Brian, for yeah. being our special pop guest today. Thanks yes, for popping yes. in, buddy.
1: Well, it actually worked out good. Yeah. Uh, i
0: Welcome to the What We Talked About in Class podcast brought to you from the campus of Johnston Community College in Smithfield, North Carolina, underwritten by Anchor, where everyone can make a podcast for free.